At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hope you had a great holiday weekend with Passover, Easter. Chance to spend it with your family or just to decompress. We're back in action uh, today. Dr. Marty McCary standing by for the latest on this BA2 variant. Should we be worried? Why is Philadelphia masking up again? And Congressman Mike Gallagher, uh, as you know, he's with transportation infrastructure, but most importantly, armed services. we got to get to the latest on what's happening over in Ukraine. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I'm going to be honest. Elon Musk is a danger to Twitter and to freedom of speech. He has been known to say some of the most transphobic and homophobic things to his millions of followers. So creating an arena for hate, to me, that's what that sounds like. She out of her mind? Yes. Uh, That's a Democratic strategist, Danielle Moore. Or Moody, uh, must mania and his quest for Twitter. Why this must happen and why so many worry it will. More should worry if he doesn't. Number two. Gallup recently asked the public, what are your top concerns? Of course, economy and the cost of living was number one. Second, strikingly to me, was government and poor leadership. Other presidents have been able to recover from these sorts of uh, setbacks. But I think the public has judged Biden and judged him negatively. I think so, too. The jury's in. Dems have a feeling of doom, and it's well-deserved. You got the economy, foreign policy, a befuddled president, uh, and almost uh, and who's basically lost the confidence of the American people. And for the Republicans, Donald Trump puts his personal power on the line by backing some Republican underdogs in their primary. Number one. Despite the Russians uh, gathering and consolidating their forces here, I think the Ukrainians are going to give them a hell of a tough fight here. And it, there's no certainty that the Russians are going to be able to accomplish uh, what they want here in the South. I hope not. Je- the epic battle looms in Donbass as Russia amasses forces to take the east and perhaps the south What's still stri- while still striking the north. What's the West doing to arm Ukraine to win as Russia's cruelty barbarity hits new lows and Ukraine's strength gains global respect? So let's put that on hold for just a second and bring in Dr. Marty McCary, Fox News contributor, surgeon, and professor of health and uh, policy at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health and author of the book, The Price We Pay, and a voice of reason throughout the last two years of this pandemic. First thing, Dr. McCary, uh, what is your take as a medical professional studying everything the way you studied about this pandemic and seeing China lock down 25 million people without food or water? You heard the screams from Shanghai. I mean, does this does this befuddle you? Well, it's cruel. There, I mean, you see the human rights violations, Brian, there, which are hard to watch. But separate from that, from a medical standpoint, it's 
ineffective. Scientifically, it's an invalid strategy because they were able to contain the Wuhan original strain yeah. with those severe lockdowns. But you cannot do that with Omicron. It's just so much more contagious. Remember, we've been numb to it, but almost every variant that we've had, beta, delta, Omicron, BA1, BA2, has been 30 to 50 percent more contagious than the prior. So we're looking at a strain now that is, say, three to four times more contagious than the other one. People have gotten it in hotel rooms with no contact, separate hotel rooms. I mean, it jumps around, so it's just not going to work. And they didn't use the time they bought wisely to really vaccinate their population well with the effective Moderna and Pfizer vaccines in J&J. Instead, they used their own vaccine, and they didn't really encourage it strongly among older people. There's 50 million older Chinese people that are at risk right now. Yeah, by the way, nobody wants their vaccine. Uh, BA2 is out there. Hospitalizations are down. There's just 1,464 daily hospital admissions this week, compared to a seven-day average of more than 21,000 in January. Deaths are down to 512 nationwide in a country of 300 million. That's down 21%. Cases are up. So the question is, for all you medical professionals, shouldn't someone go, oh, by the way, the BA2 is the least mild thing that we've dealt with over the last two years? Should that not be a factor as we watch Philadelphia mask up? I know colleges are masking up again. Well, we are at an all-time pandemic two-year low of COVID deaths. And the COVID deaths numbers, numbers that we have are more and more inflated as time has progressed because you get more and more incidental positives the more contagious the variant is. So the number right now, I believe, is inflated, the number of COVID hospitalizations and COVID deaths, and we are still at an all-time pandemic low. What the public has absolutely no tolerance for at this point is public health officials to say, we're going to continue to use our emergency powers that are granted, we're self-granted for a health emergency just to watch things a little more. And that's exactly the logic you heard by Ashish Jha at the White House in announcing why they're keeping the TSA restrictions just so they can watch things a little more. People have no tolerance for it. Watch. Here he is, uh, Dr. Uh, Jha. Now he's going from an analyst. He's an insider now. Cut 25. BA2 is causing an increase in cases. We're going to want to watch that carefully, mm-hmm. see if it translates into severe disease. At this point, it's much more about paying close attention, seeing what happens. And that's what we're doing right now. Great. So they're going to continue to watch. He went on to, for people <laughs> over 60, they've been looking at Israel, cut 26. The data out of Israel is pretty compelling. And that's what really, I think, drove both the FDA and CDC to make the decisions it did. So my recommendation right now, following the CDC and FDA guidance on this, is if you're over 60, you should be, go, you should be out there and you should be getting that second booster. You, feel, you agree? Compelling. I would not say the data were compelling or significant. I mean, as I read this New England Journal of Medicine paper that came out after the FDA authorized the fourth dose, the benefit was in 1 in 42,000 seniors, and it was in a subgroup beyond which the FDA authorized it. The FDA gave Pfizer more than they even applied for. They gave it, they authorized it for everyone over 50. The study just looks at those over 60 and 65, and the benefit was so small. And we believe the benefit there was for those with immunosuppression. That was tens of thousands of people in that study, but they didn't tell us those were who, those were the subgroup who benefited. But we believe 
that is the subgroup that did. So I wouldn't call that compelling data. And that's why the expert advisors at the FDA said, really, no, we're not on board with this. I mean, these are top people. The editor of the New England Journal of Medicine told CNN he's not on board with this. He didn't see the data. He didn't think it was compelling. That was just before the FDA authorized it. I spoke with Cody Meisner, another member. He said there's really no scientific case that he sees right now. Right. Um, you look at Paul Offit. He said we've got booster mania. This is – you know Paul Offit. I mean he's like the top vaccinologist in the country. He said he's not even giving his son, who's like 20-something, a, a, the first booster. He doesn't believe in it. He says we've got booster mania and companies are acting as our health agencies. Yeah, I can't. Pharma companies. No kidding. By the way, I, I looked at my uh, – I got my electronic thing. So I got boosted twice. I got, I got vaccinated. So my second one was April 19th. So it's up tomorrow. Does that mean when people say, are you vaccinated, I will say no? If it's up for the shareholders of these pharma companies, you might be getting a booster every Monday morning at work <laughs> because <laughs> the, the effect is only transitory when we're talking about reducing the risk of acquiring the infection you basically get a sugar high for several weeks after the booster. And that's why even Michael Osterholm, who's a Democrat Party loyalist, will tell you this is not a strategy. Re- continual boosters is not a strategy. We got a good study that uh, two weeks ago that showed that the primary vaccine series activates the B and T cells. And that's what's giving good protection against severe illness. People should feel good about that protection. I would hope so. But I want you to hear this is what the the diverse opinions are. And I'm being generous. Uh, Obviously, I don't agree. But everyone's entitled to their own opinion when when you're not a doctor. I listen to Howard Stern over the weekend. You would think that if he steps out of his house, he is going to be destroyed by a virus. Uh, So he won't. So listen to Sonny Hostin, who's a host on The View. When it comes to mask mandates... Um, they're there because people just aren't great people. Um, and that, that's just the bottom line. Americans just aren't, aren't great to each other. We just aren't. And so when it comes to things like flying, yeah, you know, the, the mask mandate the mask. is supposed to be lifted April 18th. I don't want to get on a plane with super spreaders. I don't want to get on a plane with 214 other people that are going to be breathing on me with their COVID breath. Right. I don't- uh, Dr. McCary, do you want to get on a plane with everyone breathing on you with their COVID breath? Well, when it's framed that way, of course, it makes it sound – look, these are arguments designed for zero COVID. You know, so she should never swim in a swimming pool because there's always a risk of drowning. And the question is, at what point do we accept a little bit of risk? What we need to do is – well, first of all, the doctor's conferences, Brian, people are not wearing masks. Thousands and thousands of doctors – in these auditoriums, at social gatherings, at side parties, I've attended several of these doctors' conferences in the last few months. Nobody is wearing a mask with the exception of maybe 1% or 2% of individuals. So why do they feel that COVID-0 is critical when the doctors are comfortable with the risk? Right. And what is the protocol? My last question to you, Dr. Goods, normally if I question you off the air, you're always charging me. So I'm going to take advantage of our relationship uh, on the air. Uh, what are the rules? For example, if you take a test because let's say you want to go to a concert, you don't you feel fine. And they go, you are positive. And of course, you have no symptoms. What should we do? Well, I think what you should uh, – what the CDC would tell you to do is to go into a cave for five to ten days. But I would tell you 
avoid people who are high risk. If you have, or if you're in close indoor contact with others for more than a you know brief moment, wear a high quality mask at a courtesy for at least five days or so, and live your life. I mean, we've been doing this the entire our entire lives. We just need to now adopt more common sense practices, which means if you're sick, stay home. And if you've been exposed, be careful for about five days or so. And I'll tell you why. Because you know about the horrific shooting at the subway in New York City. Our mayor tested positive, had no symptoms. He said had a little bit of a stuffy nose one day. And he, he had to stay in his apartment because he said that's the protocol. If he was not high profile in an emergency situation like that, did he do the right thing, for example, knowing that you know you have a leadership position in a major city are you being overly cautious at the detriment of not doing your job? You know, the days when people would uh, – you'd see somebody at a gathering and they'd say, actually, I don't want to shake your hand. Please, please yeah. stay a little bit away because yep. I might be sick. Or That's what we need to do. It's, I mean, these are common sense strategies. Profound isolation has medical harm. I can tell you. I've seen seniors die from it. And we're seeing now a mental health crisis among children. So the idea of just throw everybody in the, in the cellar for a week, you know, anytime anyone's got potential close contact, that's not an effective, durable strategy. Dr. McCary, thanks so much. It's kind of cool. You're in D.C. in the Bureau. We are literally just like a two-camera show <laughs> on Fox Nation. So you benefited the country for doing that. I appreciate it. Dr. Good McCary, you, thank Brian. you. Absolutely. one 408 When we come back, I take the calls. I know you have a lot to say this uh, after a weekend with your families, theoretically. And then Mike Gallagher. I'm giving you the latest. I have not talked in detail about the war. We need to get into it. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Gallup recently asked the public, what are your top concerns? Of course, economy and the cost of living was number one. Second, strikingly to me, was government and poor leadership. Mm. So other presidents have been able to recover from these sorts of uh, Mm. setbacks. But I think the public has judged Biden and judged him negatively. And it's going to be hard for him to change that perception no matter what happens. I don't think there's any doubt about it. That's why he's got about 35 to 38 percent approval rating. That's why when it comes to the economy, it's at 32 percent. What I think Democrats are really getting concerned about is they are losing younger people. 18 to 34, only 12 percent said the economy was good. When you asked, was it poor, 87 percent 18 to 34 were poor. Interesting theory on that. For the most part, when something comes out and it's brand new, whether, you know, any type of cell phone is probably the easiest example. It comes out a little expensive. You wait it out, it comes down. For the first time in every young person's lifetime, you're watching prices actually go up. You not had a chance to deal with inflation. I didn't. You know, in the 80s, you're not really, you, know, you hear about it, but I'm not really discussing it. I'm not really buying stuff. I'm a teenager uh, in high school. But now you have 18 to 34 saying, why is it so expensive to shop? Why are the interest rates at 5% makes it harder for my first home? And why doesn't he get rid of my student loan, which is a tragedy? We should never get rid of student loans. And here's why. 
every student loan you get rid of. I admit there should have been more consultation when you take out a parent loan with a student loan and tuitions are $70,000. I feel bad for the situations like that, especially with medical and uh, legal degrees. You get a law degree. I get it. However, there's a whole bunch of 40-year-olds, 35-year-olds, 50-year-olds who paid off their loan and feel like total suckers. They're going to be outraged that we haven't. So uh, that you decided that these people don't have to pay back the loan 22 to 30 because, I don't know, the pandemic happened two years ago? It makes no sense. For in terms of Democrats and their hopelessness, Chris Christie pointed this out. And... uh, when, uh, he was on a panel on This Week with George Stephanopoulos, and Donna Brazil just made a point earlier. Here's his follow-up, Cup 14. We're running on the gas that Joe Biden's giving us at $5 a gallon. That's what we're running on. We're running on $5 gasoline. We're running on 8.5% inflation. We're running on a failed withdrawal from Afghanistan. We are running on a president who, and, and a Democratic Party that their own party, people like Larry Summers and Joe Manchin, just said this week, created this inflation through the rescue plan in January. So I, I said this last week, I'm more than thrilled for Donna and her group to continue to run on what's happened over the last 15, 16 months. If they do, it will be, I don't know if it'll be a 1994 bloodbath, because I don't think there's enough seats left in play, George, to get to those numbers. But I think you could see a 35 to 40 seat win for the Republicans in the House if it continues. And you could see us at 52 or 53 in the Senate. Yeah, that would be interesting to get 53 to down from 49 when they threw it in the street in Georgia. And that had a lot to do with President Trump and his alienation of the attorney general and governor. People listening might say, no, they were wrong. They should overturn the election. They had no proof to overturn the election. That was the problem. But the friction that took place January 5th when they lost both seats, we are paying the price right now for this, for the collapse of the border, for the terrible economy. Thankfully, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema stood up. Do you know what their Democrats want to do? You know what their game plan is? To convince Joe Manchin, but their big thing is let's be nice to Joe Manchin. Let's not threaten him anymore. Be be nice to Joe Manchin. Get him to do a skinny Build Back Better plan. Really. A whole bunch of social spending when we're overspending. And for those people who keep saying, well, Joe Biden has cut the deficit. He cut the deficit because we were writing checks for the once-in-a-lifetime-and-a-half pandemic. And when that money evaporated because we put it into the system, of course the deficit would be less uh, the following year. So that's the other big issue I'm going to talk about throughout the show today is, uh, you know, who's going to run against Trump on the other side? So there's there's a thought out there that Pence is running anyway. There's a thought out there that Chris Christie and and Larry Hogan are going to run anyway. That would not surprise me. Pence wouldn't shock me or make it very awkward. But also Mike Pompeo, who joined me at One Nation on Saturday night, says he's getting ready to run. I personally don't think he or Nikki Haley will run against Trump, but he'll be a part of it. But only if Trump at 75 says, I just don't want to do this. Uh, but I, I, but if he tells us too early, he will get those crowds and he will not be as sought after at Mar-a-Lago. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share.
a radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Do you get the sense that Vladimir Putin uh, uh, is viewing reality in what's happening in Ukraine, or is he getting uh, a dressed-up picture of the war? No, I think he is now in his own war logic. You know, um, he thinks the war is necessary for uh, security guarantees for the Russian Federation. He doesn't trust the international community. He blames the Ukrainians um, to, for uh, genocide, uh, genocide in uh, the Donbas region. So, um, well, um, he is now in his world, but I think he knows what is going on now in Ukraine. Oh, well, we're not really sure that needs. The headline of that was he says he thinks he's winning. I'm not sure he thinks he's winning. I think he wants to make sure as many people die as possible uh, while he tries to win. Uh, and most of them aren't wearing uniforms. He's actually targeting civilians. Congressman Mike Gallagher is with us now from Wisconsin. Uh, he's also with the Armed Services Committee. Uh, Congressman, what do your reports say? Do they say that, that Putin knows he's struggling? I mean, he lost how many commanders now? Well, it would be impossible for him not to know. Clearly, his initial strategy, a blitzkrieg strategy, failed. So everything I'm hearing suggests that he is now scaled back to concentrate on the east and southeast. And his objective may no longer be controlling all of the country, but rather just establishing a land bridge from Crimea to Russia, taking control of key cities like Odessa and Mariupol. And though it is a testament to the Ukrainians that they forced him to scale back his ambitions, if he's able to achieve that more modest ambition, it would still be a disaster for Ukraine. And I think the one thing that we've learned throughout this is that Putin really, you know, he believes human life is cheap. He's willing to sacrifice a lot of his own soldiers, as well as innocent Ukrainian lives in pursuit of his objectives. So he's clearly encountering friction, but he still is trying to grind out some modest victory through attrition warfare. And if he gets more of a lifeline from China, he may be able to persist far longer than Western analysts understand. So I want you to hear what Lieutenant General Ben Hodges had to say. Uh, he says that we got to get more weapons into them and quickly, but he thinks, he thinks the pressure's on the Russians. Cut, uh, cut eight. But I do think that the pressure on the general staff to deliver Mariupol finally ahead of 9 May is immense. Uh, 9 May, of course, is this annual celebration in Russia of the end of World War II or what they call the Great Patriotic War. It's a huge parade in Red Square every year. Uh, so obviously they need to have something to parade to, to show as a victory on 9 May. So I think this date does does have importance there. Well, I, I think it would be important in the perfect world, but he missed so many other deadlines, and it's about three weeks. That's about three weeks to do something substantial in the Donbass region. Mariupol will be the link between Crimea and Donbass, and right now they're still holding on unfathomably, unthinkably. But we eventually are giving them the most, the latest shipment to go out to them is the most lethal. I just wish we wouldn't be doing it so gradual. Give the Russians, give give the Ukrainians what they need uh, to be successful, even though they're about to take on the Russians in an open field to an old tank-type battle. Here's what uh, Jack Keane said, who, who uh, chairs the Institute for the Study of War. Uh, cut seven. 
I am done underestimating these Ukrainians. They have the skill, they have the will, they got the leaders, and they are determined. And with the proper equipment in their hands, they're going to do very well here. What do you think? Uh, what are they telling you at Armed Services? Do you guys have stuff to give or are you having trouble getting it? Uh, we do, but just quickly to your point, I think it's very important. More than 80% of the security assistance that we've provided to Ukraine since the administration took office has come after the Russian invasion on February 24th. So I can't help but think how many lives we could have saved if we hadn't underestimated the Ukrainians, to General Keene's point, and those weapons had been in their arsenal before the conflict started. We may have averted the whole thing. In fact, when I questioned the Secretary of Defense, uh, Secretary Austin, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley, last week about this, one, they admitted that deterrence failed, which they hadn't admitted before, and two, they said the only thing that might have deterred Putin was more hard power. So uh, to your immediate question about this latest aid package, okay, it's a, it's a positive step forward. It's about $800 million in, in security assistance for Ukraine, you know, uh, M-17 helicopters, howitzers, artillery rounds, javelins, armored vehicles, et cetera. Two things we haven't given them, though, that I think would be very important, and this may sound a bit too in the weeds, but one is something called the MLRS long-range artillery, as well as anti-ship missiles. We, we have reports that these Neptune missiles are going to be backfilled by American-provided uh, harpoons. But clearly, I think there's more we can do on that front. And if, if, if the Ukrainians can sink more Russian warships, like we saw last week, I mean, that is a massive game changer. And that is a huge humiliation for Putin. And that will have long-term impacts on the Russians' ability to dominate both the Black Sea, as well as our ability to hold their fleet at risk in other areas, such as the Eastern Mediterranean. And the fact that we effectively surrendered the Black Sea at the start of this crisis was yet another self-inflicted wound. So bottom line, Brian, there's much more we can do. And the Ukrainians have stepped up and they've shown how a numerically inferior uh, force that is armed with good weapons and a superior will to fight can have a devastating impact in modern war. Very true. Now, just let's pivot if we can and talk about what's going on. There was no doubt about it. As soon as Russia invaded, they got kicked out of the World Cup. They stopped Grand Prix races there. They don't let them uh, compete uh, their club in a club championship. I get it. I was heartened to see that. But when it comes to China, it's a different story. And you point out that, for example, look at the Nets owner. Tell me about the New Jer- the, the Brooklyn Nets owner. Well, you know, anytime you have someone with uh, clear ties to the uh, Chinese Communist Party owning major assets in America like Joseph Tsai, uh, you're going to have a massive conflict of interest. And I, you know, this is a guy who back in 2019 wanted Daryl Morey, who was running the Houston Rockets, to be fired for a tweet that was supporting the people of Hong Kong. And it just illustrates how certain industries, the NBA and Hollywood are foremost among them, have sold their soul to China in order to make a profit. And for whatever reason, and Ennis Cantor Freedom was the one who pointed out this contradiction. These same people are are quick to condemn Russia and say, we stand with Ukraine. But when it comes to slave labor in China, when it comes to the brutality of the Chinese Communist Party, they're absolutely silent because they're making money hand over fist. 
and they don't want anything to kill the golden goose in China. And furthermore, Brian, as we look at the conflict in Ukraine and we scratch our heads thinking, how could the Europeans allow themselves to get to a position where they're so dependent on Russia for, for energy? Well, we are in a similar position with respect to China. Now, it's not for energy, but it's for the manufacturing of all sorts of different goods, whether it's microelectronics or other key industries, rare earth metals. We have allowed ourselves to become dangerously dependent on China. And so one of the lessons of Ukraine for the NBA, for Hollywood, for American manufacturing writ large, particularly where it intersects with the defense industrial base, is that we need to wean ourselves off of our addiction on China before it's too late. And I don't care if the Brooklyn Nets owner wants to make money. American national security takes precedence, and China remains our biggest long-term threat. And if anything, Russia is going to grow more dependent on China. The worse this war goes for Putin, he is merely becoming Xi's sadistic sidekick, and they are engaged in the same enterprise, which is to undermine and ultimately destroy the West. Well, look, uh, we know that uh, Joseph Tsai is co-founder of Alibaba. We know what happened to his business partner. He disappeared. Jack Ma comes back. We haven't heard much from him. He was beginning to talk negatively about the Chinese government. So Joseph Tsai lives here and paid a lot of money for the for the Nets, uh, like some other owners, uh, seems to really value the Chinese market, like LeBron James, even like Michael Jordan, who's one of the owners of the uh, Hornets. A hundred percent. And I, I think the biggest long-term effect of the last five years, and a lot of credit goes to a lot of people in the Trump administration who figured this out pretty early, is that we are going to have to go through the painful process of selectively decoupling from China in key industries, particularly where it threatens our national security. And for a lot of American business leaders, they are going to have to choose. I'm sorry. I wish I wish it were different. But there's, there's some areas where there just can't be nuance. You can't sort of half profit off genocide and slave labor uh, in China. There's going to have to be a stark difference. And I I just think too many people in America have yet to reckon with this. We see this particularly in the world of Wall Street and high finance, where the very same people that are lecturing us about climate change constantly and trying to infuse so-called ESG requirements into every decision that American free enterprise makes are the same ones that are increasing their investments in China, and China does not care a lick about the environment. So whether it's Larry Fink uh, at BlackRock or or other people that lecture us about how bad America is, these are the same people that continue to double, if not triple down, on their investments in China. And it's unsustainable, Brian. It's absolutely unsustainable. They will have to choose at some point, and they should choose the side of America. These are Americans. These are American companies. They should act like it. Yeah, I'm wondering, too, because we saw a couple of athletes defect to China, born and trained in America, because China offered them a ton of money. you got to wonder what's going on there. On top of that, too, Joseph Tsai wanted to defend China. says most people there are very happy, um, and he talked to – he doesn't really – you know, says he might be financing slave labor but never admits to that. He also reportedly uh, asked for Daryl Worley to be fired when he re- expressed support for the people of Hong Kong. And he has denied that, but we'll have to see. Uh, well, of course he did, I'm sure, behind the scenes. And by the way, shame on the NBA commissioner 
in that whole episode completely just bent the knee to Xi Jinping in China and did whatever was possible to throw Daryl Morey uh, under the bus. And, and as well as some of his players, I mean, I, me- I mentioned Ennis Cantor Freedom, who's been absolutely maligned and sidelined because he had the temerity to criticize the totalitarian regime in China. So it, the NBA is just showing what hypocrisy looks like when it comes to China. Um, and nothing is worth selling your soul to an evil communist dictatorial regime like that. Yeah, we'll see what happens, uh, see if people have the same courage, because this whole story is going to be in everybody's lap soon. Uh, we have to be overt in arming Taiwan. Uh, they'll pay. They'll write the checks. They will train them and just let them defend themselves. That's got to be our new strategy. Uh, Mike Gallagher, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. You got it. One eight six six. 408-7669. we come back, I'll take uh, some of your phone calls. We'll also uh, talk about what's going on with the war. We're going to get into it next. you listen to Brian Kilmeade Show. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on the Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. A video has also gone viral of President Biden finishing a speech in North Carolina, then apparently turning to shake hands with an invisible person. (laughs) Hey, her name is Kamala. See, that is a little of SNL, which goes out of their way not to really hit Joe Biden, but that was as close as they got. I mean, Joe Biden has done some of those embarrassing things imaginable, and it's a gift to things like SNL, but they still are overdoing Trump. They said from him, from his faux pas to his walkbacks to uh, over the weekend, you had Jen Psaki saying a podcast, negative things about Peter Ducey, and you go back and forth about when's the last time a press secretary used an expletive to describe a reporter. I mean, all this stuff is just ripe for comedy, you would think, but it's not so much. There's some a little bit more from SNL um, from uh, the weekend update. The rest was o- almost unwatchable, but yeah, here is uh, here's another cut. But for real, this Easter, I got the best news of all New York. We got him. We got the shooter. Sure, it took 30 hours, and the suspect turned himself in, but we got him. Case closed. Subway's fixed. Ride without fear. And I'm not just holding a press conference about this either. I'm throwing a parade, y'all. Like we do when the Yankees win the World Series or when the Mets finish a season. <laughs> In conclusion, shooter caught. Sexy back. Violent crime way up. <laughs> Bitch, I'm from New York. It's Eric Adams. I run this town. Bye. That is uh, hysterical. Uh, that is uh, talking about crime. That was Eric Adams. I do think they do a good hymn. And Eric Adams kind of likes it, so I don't think they're going to stop it uh, doing that. But there was a time when SNL would actually make fun of the fact that uh, Barack Obama was maybe asleep during one of the debates. Remember when he was getting an easy time against Hillary Clinton? They would have fun with that. Those days are over. They left with Will Ferrell, I guess, I imagine. Remember, Will Ferrell made fun of uh, Bush and went on, on, on a Broadway play. And, yeah, it was negative, but it wasn't mean-spirited. It was comedy, making fun of all the things that President Bush had to make fun of. Gerald Ford being clumsy. Uh, 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 George W. Bush possibly not being the most eloquent. Kind of interesting. 
Another big story is what's going on with Elon Musk and Twitter. So, as you know, last week he offered $54.20 a share for Twitter, $43 billion, and said, listen, everyone's going to make money. The shareholders make money. Let me have it. Instead, they are so worried about Elon Musk taking over Twitter and making it a place for both Republicans and Democrats, my view. They said we're going to take a poison pill and devalue the stock. So over the weekend, Eli Musk is coming up with the brand uh, uh, was tweeting and coming up with the strategy. What I think he's going to do is try to put it up to the shareholders. Some of the things that he tweeted is kind of interesting because he found out that none of the shareholders own any. Excuse me, none of the board members own any Twitter stock. Wait a second. So you are going to decide what's best for the stockholders, but you don't even own any stock. So David Sachs, who, who is the president of um, a venture capital firm, widely respected Kraft Ventures, tweeted this out. If the game is fair, Elon will buy Twitter. If the game is rigged and there will be some reason why he won't be able to, we're about to find out how deep the corruption is. Elon Musk wrote back right after that, indeed. So he is dug in on this. So Elon Musk also uh, got some people who are talking out against him, which I think gets him going even more. Here's what he said. Elon Musk, uh, here's what Daniel Moody said of um, uh, on MSNBC, Cut 20. I'm going to be honest. Elon Musk is a danger to Twitter and to freedom of speech. He has been known to say some of the most transphobic and homophobic things to his millions of followers. So creating an arena for hate, to me, that's what that sounds like. Really? I, I don't know him to be homophobic or anti-transphobic. I just think he's I don't even think he's going to be necessarily conservative. But when it was time to invite people to the White House to talk about what's next with electric cars or what's next with space or who are the best businessmen and women of the world to come on and talk about how to get that deficit down and keep continuing to grow the economy. Donald Trump invited everybody except, you know, there's some haters he wouldn't invite. Do you know when they talk about electric cars, when they talk about space, this administration doesn't invite Elon Musk, the guy who has SpaceX and Tesla. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, coming to you from 48th and 6th, heard around the country, heard around the world. Yep, 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, uh, where people are coming back to work. But evidently, uh, there's like a million people who are not working in New York City. They get a deal with their company, like J.P. Morgan. They, you got to kind of go on, you know, uh, walk on eggshells to make sure you don't upset people. They don't sue because it's coming back for this pandemic. A lot of people are elected to get back to work. Dave Rubin's going to be with me in a matter of moments. We'll talk about that and so much more. He's got a brand new book out. And the bottom of the hour, the latest on the war and things are uh, changing. Uh, Governor uh, General Jack Keene will be here from the Institute of the Study of War, and he is Probably got the best information in the country about what's happening in Ukraine. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I'm going to be honest. Elon Musk is a danger to Twitter and to freedom of speech. He has been known to say some of the most transphobic and homophobic things to his millions of followers. So creating an arena for hate, to me, that's what that sounds like. It's nuts. Musk mania and his quest for Twitter. Why this must happen and why so many worry it will and more should worry if it doesn't. 
Number two. Gallup recently asked the public, what are your top concerns? Of course, economy and the cost of living was number one. Second, strikingly to me, was government and poor leadership. Other presidents have been able to recover from these sorts of uh, setbacks. But I think the public has judged Biden and judged him negatively. Yeah, I mean, it all really started with Afghanistan. Uh, to, to be, that's when everyone stopped giving him the benefit of the doubt. Dems have a feeling of doom, and it's well-deserved. The economy, foreign policy, and a befuddled president has almost all the confidence out of that party. The question now on the right will be, is it still Donald Trump's party as he puts his personal power on the line in the midterms, backing some underdog candidates? Number one. Despite the Russians uh, gathering and consolidating their forces here, I think the Ukrainians are going to give them a hell of a tough fight here. And it, there's no certainty that the Russians are going to be able to accomplish uh, what they want here in the South. Epic battle looms in Donbass as Russians amass forces to take the east and perhaps the south while still striking in the north as of today. Six dead. What's the West doing to arm Ukraine to win as Russia's cruelty and barbarity hits new lows in Ukrainian strength? Ukraine's global respect. Let's bring in Dave Rubin, one of the deep thinkers in our country, uh, host of the Dave Rubin Report, best-selling author. He's got a brand-new book that's doing exceedingly well as well, Don't Burn This Country, Surviving and Thriving in Our Woke uh, Dystopia. Dave, welcome back. Brian, it's good to be with you. I got to tell you, man, I was doing my research this morning, and I could not come up with one homophobic nor transphobic tweet from Elon Musk. A lot about business and creating success. But nothing homophobic or transphobic. Yeah, I mean, they do. He doesn't get up every day saluting uh, transsexuals, <laughs> right? But even Caitlyn Jenner doesn't. So uh, I, I don't understand what it is. But let's start there. Can you explain Elon Musk, who is not exactly Newt Gingrich of uh, of inventors, where he's more Thomas Edison, right? <laughs> this guy is just just somebody's a deep thinker, cares, but like he tends to be in between. What? Why are some people so upset of him? Might by might by Twitter. Well, the simple answer to that is because the guy wants to defend free speech. Everything, regardless of whether you agree with him politically or not, and he's actually, as you're saying, he's not very political. His his true political beliefs are not known that well. You know, he's got some libertarian beliefs for sure. He likes capitalism and the open market. But at the same time, you know, he's gotten government subsidies when he's done Tesla and some other things. So he's a little bit of a mix, which is probably what most people are at, at some level. Uh, But he holds no radical positions that anyone knows of. He's come in. He said, hey, I want to defend free speech. I want Twitter to be an open platform, and I'm going to pay a crazy premium to do it. I mean, the funny thing that people need to understand about the Twitter situation is that when Twitter went public in 2013, their valuation is basically the same as it was a couple weeks ago. So the company has not grown in any really effective way. Then he comes in and says, hey – I will pay you guys a lot more. And I can tell you this, Brian, as you know, anybody who has ever started a company or put a dime into a company, the dream, the ultimate dream is to get that call from Elon Musk. Hey, I want to buy your company. Uh, So the fact that he's saying I'll pay more and the board now is basically at war with the shareholders because the board is saying we're not going to do it. But if you're the average shareholder – of Twitter stock, of course you want to sell to Elon Musk. And and that actually has almost nothing to do with politics. You you want to sell because why do you buy stakes in a company? You, you buy stakes so that you can make some money. So this thing really has exposed some very, very strange things related to how free speech and big tech and big business all operate together. All right, a couple of things. If And I'll, fundamentally, 
I could figure out the issues of the day. Remember we had uh, – if, we, if we're talking about issues that are facing Americans, inflation, no doubt about it. Uh, the war in Ukraine, no doubt about it. What's going on at our border, no doubt about it. I know where you stand, roughly the same place as I stand. But I have no problem figuring out what the issues are. What has caught me by surprise over the last few years, and it's pretty much why you wrote the book, is people all of a sudden tell me about pronouns. I thought it was mm-hmm. a joke. I had no idea we'd be talking about it. People tell me about where our country's built on stolen land uh, uh, and on slavery. Wait, our history is being attacked? And now we hear about transsexuals and kids and hormone blockers and 12-year-olds. I'm thinking to myself, who's coming up with this agenda? Have you figured it out where the woke mob came from? Well, that's so that's the gajillion dollar question. Where did they came from? Because what they've done, and I always say this on my show, Brian, you have to give the devil his due. We may not like what they're doing. I know that we don't, obviously, and your listeners don't either. But you have to acknowledge that they have done some real destructive stuff here, and that's what their goal was. So you have to first say, okay, you guys have done partly what you've, what you've tried to accomplish, and, and there's something to be said about that, even if you don't like what they've done. Now, they've done things such as two plus two is five, and boys are girls, and our history is racism, and non-racism is racism, and the rest of it. So where did it come from? I mean, there's a couple arguments around this. You know, some people say it's the long march through the institutions that sort of communists and Marxists got in, usually through the Ivy League schools in the 60s, and they just sort of did it all on the DL. I would say in a modern context, because that's really how most of us are talking about it now, these last five years, a very radical base figured out how to get into the corporations. They figured out how to infiltrate the big tech companies, and now you've got people like the CEO of Disney, Bob Chappick, who obviously, I don't know his full pedigree, but to become the CEO of Disney, you've got to have a pretty good pedigree. You, know how, you have to know how to acquire companies and expand business and find new opportunities. You've got this guy groveling, groveling to his LGBTQ plus whatever it is uh, group, begging for forgiveness and saying he'll be a better ally. And it's like, man, you have signed your own death warrant because you are now a hostage to your own radical group. So where did it come from? It probably came from all of us for not standing up a little bit faster, but I, I don't think it's too late. I, I don't either because I think the backlash is taking place. I'm, I'm watching it now, and what it is is in a way I'll, I'll give the devil his due and from what you said, but I'll also say you overplayed your hand because you've mm-hmm. activated people that had no interest in getting involved in school boards, no interest to get involved in the, uh, in the political process, who pretty much were moderate toward Democrats who are saying, wait a second, if I don't vote a certain now for Republicans, I'm going to end up with an agenda where my kid's going to be home at night and uh, my son's going to feel like a girl one day and be able to get a subscription for or a prescription for hormone blockers. Brian, I always say on my show, you don't have to be a Republican, but you cannot be a Democrat. And I think that that's where a lot of the country sits. So, of course, you're going to have your traditional conservative Republican voters. Uh, But right now, the average person that you're talking about, that parent in Virginia who most likely was going to vote Democrat, and then they realized that critical race theory and all this crazy gender stuff was in their schools. You went after their kids, and then suddenly what happens? Glenn Youngkin wins, and that is a good win. It doesn't matter – if you are a Republican or a Democrat, that is a good win for America, for freedom and for rational thought and all of those things. So it's sort of, uh, as you know, I moved from Los Angeles to, to Florida in like these last three months. And I can tell you, man, I feel like I live in a different country. The state of freedom in Florida is so strong, thanks to not only Ron DeSantis, but the people who voted the right way, thankfully, 
that that there is a flourishing here while California crumbles. So people have to make decisions for their lives. Do you want to live in places that are going to indoctrinate your children, destroy your businesses, and make you live in a place that is you know unsafe because of criminals or homeless people? Or do you want to take a chance and, and be part of freedom? And it's a little messier, but I guarantee you it's much better on the other side. Uh, so Dave Rubin's with us, Don't Burn This Country, is the name of his book. Dave, so there's, there's some things going on that are they're pretty overwhelmingly bad. Number one, is anyone pro-homeless encampment? Because that's what happened. You know, is, is, yeah. Yeah, is anyone pro-defunding the police? You're, they're afraid to say it now, except unless you're Cory Bush or the squad. And now even Nancy Pelosi speaks up and says, i got to make it clear, I don't go along with that. But in 2020, she never would have admitted that. Can you give people out there some hope, or am I giving them f- false hope in pointing out that people are getting outraged? Because those, those homeless encampments don't really uh, don't tug at your heartstrings. They're violence. Ninety percent of them are violent, mentally ill, maybe armed, committing crimes. Look, the simple truth is that what the Democrats are extremely good at are giving what are seemingly good answers to very complex problems that actually create things worse. So, of course, if you say I care about homeless people, the the simple answer without thinking any further is, okay, put more money towards it. And that is what California has done relentlessly for decades in essence, and it has made the problem much, much worse. We could talk about mental health, we could talk about getting drugs off the street, all of those things, but the policing one, as you just said, look at every one of these Democrat cities that we watched burn in 2020, uh, You know, whether it's Portland, Seattle, where you are in New York City, uh, San Francisco, et cetera, they defunded the police. They said to people, be more lawless. New York City right now, as you know, you can jump the turnstile and at the subway and they will not arrest you or fine you. Little crimes like that start little, but then start bubbling up into bigger crimes because you say to the people who are the law-abiding citizens, hey, you're a sucker, man. Why are you paying the 250 or three bucks for the subway? Because you could just hop it like, like these guys. So everywhere that that the Democrats let the inmates run the asylum, basically let the squad ideas take over, it has destroyed those cities. So the hope the hope is I'm not very hopeful that the Democrats will suddenly turn around. I don't think that there's enough moderates left. I think they've they've destroyed the the old moderate Democrat. If you're an old moderate Democrat, you're basically a, a Republican at this point. The hope is that the red states will strengthen and the red states will do the right thing, and then good, decent people will have to figure out where they want to live. It's a somewhat depressing reality in a way. But remember, we're founded on federalism, the idea that these are the United States of America, meaning the states are different and individual, and you can figure out where you want to live. Yeah, you can vote with your feet, uh, especially with high taxes, high crime, not a good combination. It's time to move to Texas or Florida, and that's what's been happening in this country uh, with the more and South Carolina. I was in South Carolina a few months ago, and they said— the biggest the biggest problem was we let we invited uh, tourism to come here, and then the biggest problem is now that they've decided to stay. So a lot of these states are being infiltrated by people that want to come and don't want to change. That's the scary thing. What I also think is interesting. Do you think there's a chance, Dave, that if a guy like Joe Manchin, maybe he's seventy something, maybe not him, but if a guy like Joe Manchin emerged on the left, who is center left, do you think he would get through the primary process? No, I don't, unfortunately. I think the entire machine is against him at this point. Big tech is against him. The mainstream media would be against him. They would treat him, in essence, probably a tiny bit better than they treated Donald Trump, but they would treat him no better than they would treat, say, Ron DeSantis. 
And that really is the problem, because once they let the cat out of the bag with this thing, once they said all of our opponents are racists, all of our opponents are uh, homophobes, et cetera, it left no room for anyone decent to be in there, which why, you know, that's why a guy like Chuck Schumer, if you took Chuck Schumer 10 years ago, he was a moderate Democrat, even Nancy Pelosi. I know a lot of people will find this hard to believe. She wasn't a completely crazy leftist 10 years ago, but they let the squad run in, run the narrative, and the media went all in on it. So I see no way for a moderate. Look, look, there was a moderate who ran in 2020. Her name was Tulsi Gabbard, right? She talked about being proud of America. She talked about how identity politics was bad. And the party completely destroyed her. Hillary Clinton called her a Russian asset, as did Mitt Romney, by the way. Uh, and they left no room for her. So if you are a moderate Democrat, if you are a future Joe Manchin, you have to be a Republican right now. Let's coalesce around that. And then we can go from there. And then if, you know, the Republicans can decide, OK, we can argue about all of the important stuff. We can argue about tax rates. We can even argue about abortion and other very you know, tightly held issues. But we got to save America first and then we'll deal with, you know, some of the, the ancillary issues. I just think that maybe somebody who is left like Bill Maher, when he comes out and goes, I'm against st- I'm, uh, smash and grab. Uh, I didn't think that was a, a radical idea, you know, so. I, I, when, I, when guys like that who are clearly are liberal can't understand what the party is, that gives me hope. Not that he's going to well, change, but that, that he could just point out the idiocy of what you've just outlined in your book. And final thought on that? Well, I hope you're right, and I talk about Bill Maher often because I want guys like him to exist. But the question is for a guy like Bill Maher, when will you vote for people who actually stand up for the things that you believe in? Vote for the people who defend police. Vote for the people who are against CRT and against wokeism. Otherwise, you're just screaming into the void. But, but I do get it, Brian, and, and I hope you're right, and I hope he can convert people, and they'll get to the end of the road even if he does not. Uh, Dave Rubin, congratulations on the book, uh, Don't Burn This Country, Surviving and Thriving in Our Woke Dystopia. Good job, Dave. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, my friend. I'll see you soon. You got it. Uh, bottom of the hour, General Jack Heem. Next to you, one 408 7669 Brian Kilmeade Show. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The scales right now are tipped very heavily in favor of the reforms of the progressive left. Well intended, some needed, but uh, tipped too far. And what we have uh, as a result is this growing fear of crime, this growing actual amount of crime, as evidenced in almost every major American city. So that is William Bratton making a comment, uh, I believe, on, uh, on ABC, uh, making his comments that he's worried about crime and he thinks it comes from bad policies among the woke left. So when they played that, George Stephanopoulos played William Bratton, who's been helping out Eric Adams, former police commissioner there, this is what Eric Adams said. He said, do you, do you agree with that? Cut 31. Yes, I believe he is right. And he understood what we had to go through during the mid-80s, early 90s, when we had to transform policing. Major mistakes made throughout the years that destroyed the trust that the police commissioner is talking about. We have to rebuild that trust. But we can't rebuild that trust by allowing those who are dangerous and they have a repeated history of violence to continue to be uh, on our streets. We have to unbottleneck the courts 
too many people during COVID when courts closed down have not served their time or have not been in the courtroom. And then we have to be honest about some of the things we're doing generationally that has created the crime problem that we are facing right now. And that is why we believe in intervention and prevention to solve this issue that we're facing. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, he seems to identify the issue there, but at the same time, and also called out Black Lives Matter. He said I was in Brooklyn in the Bronx, uh, Brooklyn in the Bronx, uh, I think it was two days ago. And he said, you know, there's all these shootings going on, and it's all black against black crime. Where's Black Lives Matter there? At the same time, we know about Black Lives Matter wasting millions of dollars so uh, some of their uh, board members can buy mansions. It's a joke. So Eric Adams does that and gives me great hope. At the same time, he blames ghost guns and wants to mask off four-year-olds. So he stops and starts. I think for the most part in New York City, which leads the way in so many things, including crime, I think that if he can start making some gains, I'd feel more optimistic because I like his hustle outside when he's not quarantining. But right now, grand larceny is up 110% crime overall year to year in New York City is up 37%. And he took over and it's only ticked up. General Keene next. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. They need the anti-aircraft. They need the anti-ship. The idea that the Ukrainians could down uh, one of the biggest warships that Russia has in the Black Sea. I mean, who would have thought this? You know, we were told it'd be over in four days, and now they could actually win this war if we would properly equip them. I was with Secretary James Baker last night, spoke at the uh, his institute at Rice University, and we talked about what would Reagan do? You know what? And his response was, well, you know what? He would have done a lot more and a lot sooner. Uh, that says it. Uh, General Jack Keane's in the day-to-day of this war and continuing uh, be pleasantly surprised if I could uh, actually channel my own thoughts about what you think about how far, how great the Ukrainians are fighting but they are against impossible odds or, or very tough, tough odds. General Jack Keane joins us now, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, welcome back. Yeah, it's delighted to be here, Brian, as always. Uh, so, General, a couple of things. We, uh, they're still hitting, hitting the north. They're still hitting the capital, Kiev, and they're still hitting Lviv. They killed five people with uh, long-range missile strikes, and they had a few blocked over the weekend through missile defense. What is the, what are the Russians trying to do? Just create a sense of terror throughout the country, even if they're not physically there? Yes, certainly. They they want the Ukrainian people to still feel that vulnerability and and certainly intimidation and coercion and put pressure continue to put pressure on the government as a result of the fact that innocent people are being killed. It is their way of war to conduct military operations against non combatants. Uh, and the purpose of that is to break their will. So they're going to continue that uh, that campaign. Most of those missiles uh, get delivered um, by air-launched uh, cruise missiles from airplanes that are outside the Ukrainian border. Not all of them, but most of them are, are delivered that way. And, of course, as you mentioned, uh, we're on the cusp of, uh, of a major fight in the south. It'll be the most significant fight that's taken place so far. And the fight favors the Russians in terms of uh, they've consolidated now probably about 50 or 60 of their battalion tactical groups uh, north of the Donbass region, uh, and they intend to encircle 
the Ukrainian forces, which have been in the Donbass region, so our audience understands, since 2014, they've been there. Uh, the Russians have had presence with the separatists, and the Ukrainians have, have fought them from uh, trying to expand over these last eight years. And now they're going to try to encircle those forces. And this, this, it's, the fight favors the Russians because the terrain is open and flat, and they can bring up their armor forces supported by artillery and air power. And when we refer to that as conventional combined arms warfare, the Ukrainians uh, will attempt to prevent that from happening. And that is one of the reasons why they have been asking for advanced weapon systems, uh, long and mid-range air defense, tanks, armored vehicles, artillery, counter-artillery, uh, battery fire, which is uh, radar, which is very important. And they're getting some of those systems. And what the administration did last week was certainly a good thing and a, a step in the right direction in getting them. This is going to be a very tough fight, uh, Brian. And I don't think anybody could predict the outcome uh, at this point. Certainly the Russians have underperformed, and I, it's likely they will still be able to under, underperform. But quantity has a quality all of its own. And the, as we have seen, the Russians are prepared to take unusual amount of casualties and stay in the fight and just grind down the, uh, the Ukrainians. And there's estimates uh, that these casualties they've taken are actually higher than reported and could be as high as 30%. And if that's really true, that exceeds the casualty rate uh, in World War II and in the Korean War, which is really quite staggering. But it's, it, it's a mindset and, and I think what you're seeing is their determination and resolve to really take the entire Donbass region. Uh, and that's what this focus is going to be. Certainly, their strategic objective is to control the entire southern coast of Ukraine, force Ukraine to be a landlocked country, which would devastate them economically and would likely result in uh, Zelensky having to make uh, some serious concessions to, to the Russians. But this is a fight that's right. going to unfold in the next couple of weeks. So, but to to lock them in by land, uh, that Mikhailov would have to fall, and then Odessa. And do you believe that Neptune uh, rocket or missile that that took out that ship that backed the Russian navy out of the Black Sea through a safe distance maybe prevents an amphibious landing we thought was inevitable? Yeah, well, they're not ready for Odessa yet because they committed their naval infantry to the fight in Mariupol. And so, and they had great difficulty approaching Odessa from the land as we were reporting on Fox on a daily basis. And they have not reengaged in that activity. They're not even going to think about that until Mariupol falls and they're able to consolidate their forces in the Donbass. I think what they would do if they have forces left over after the siege of Mariupol and they're not too damaged, those forces would initially, I, I would imagine, assist in, in the Donbass region fight, which means they would head north right. and participate in the encirclement. And then after the Donbass is taken, the land bridge is established, uh, they would think about moving west uh, to Odessa. But, Brian, they're, they're there's nothing coming through in, into those ports in Odessa now because the Russian Navy is out there in mass in the Black Sea and, and effectively has a, a blockade in place. 
So they have they have shut down uh, the imports and exports that Ukraine would normally get by sea. Right. Uh, so in terms of them getting the web, the Ukrainians getting the weapons they need, I know you said it was a step in the right direction. But how many more steps do we need? And can we, they want tanks. Can anyone get them tanks? Yeah, the Brits are sending them tanks and the Czechs are sending them tanks. One of the problems we have is we're just running out of former Soviet Republic vehicles, which is what they have. You know, they have Russian equipment. And there's just so many countries that have that available. And then there's countries that are stiffing us. I mean, the country in the world that has the most Russian equipment other than Russia is India. And they won't part with any of it because of their relationship uh, with Russia, which is quite frustrating. I know the administration is working hard on Vietnam, which also has uh, Russian equipment to try to get uh, equipment out of there. But what what's happening is you saw it in this list. We sent them 155 artillery as opposed to 152, which they have. And that that means some kind of a training program, you know, a quick one uh, and do it in a neighboring country. But we're going to have to rely more on NATO equipment, U.S. and NATO equipment, because we're just running out of Russian equipment to give them. And and that that there's problems associated with that. One is training. Some kind of training will have to take place Two, the repair part system. You know, they have a repair part system for the Russian equipment now because they've had it for years. They have no repair part system for any NATO equipment. So we've got to send that along. And then there's going to be a concern about certain types of equipment that we have that may indeed have classified technology associated with it. And we don't want to part with it because Mm -hmm. it could likely fall in the hands of the Russians. So those are three challenges that are coming to us as a result of us having to rely more on U.S. NATO equipment than on the on the Russian equipment. Tell me if you think this is if this is important and if this factors into this battle. This is uh, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges on Face the Nation, Cut 8. But I do think that the pressure on the general staff to deliver Mariupol finally ahead of 9 May is immense. Uh, 9 May, of course, is this annual celebration in Russia of the end of World War II or what they call the Great Patriotic War. It's a huge parade in Red Square every year. Uh, so obviously they need to have something to parade, to, to show as a victory on 9 May. So I think this date does does have importance there. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's desirable for them, and I think they're pushing for that, certainly. And it adds to that celebration. Uh, I don't think they're going to pull out every stop they have uh, just to accomplish that. I think they would like to be well on their way also by uh, by that date, of, uh, uh, having some success in the Donbass region as well. But listen, uh, so our audience understands, you know, prior prior to this invasion, Putin's popularity because of the economy and because of Cold War was in the 60s. Now, that our president would love to have uh, ratings in the 60s, as did the previous president. But Putin's ratings, when, when, when he's at his highest, are in the 80s. So they were in the 60s prior to 2014 when he went into Crimea and eastern Ukraine. The ratings jumped up into the 80s. The ratings now are in the mid-80s as a result of this military invasion. And why is that? Because of how he portrays that to his own population. He portrays it as the United States and Ukraine and NATO are the aggressors. And he is defending his republic 
the Russian people against this aggression from the West. And because he it just runs on state media over and over and over again, many of the people in Russia who do not have access to social media because it's all shut down, uh, you know, buy into it. The young people uh, who have other ways to get into social media because they're, they're very familiar with how to take advantage of the system technologically, and they also have outreach to young people in other countries, um, they're much more savvy about what's going on. So the people that have been arrested for protesting were by and large all young people. The, mo- the everyday working person in Russia is buying into this phony narrative that the United States, NATO, and Ukraine are the aggressors. And that's why his popularity is so high. I don't think there's as much pressure on him as people are making out to be, despite the obvious failure he had in the North. I think he's 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 told his commanders, we're going to finish this, and we're going to finish it on our terms. And and that's that's where they're, what they're about right now. All right. So, General, the other thing is, so would they want to get the Ukrainians in an open field. They want a tank battle. They want... So why the Ukrainians going to play into their hands? Is there a plan B? You can't create a forest. I understand that. But why give them what they want? Is for some like you who lives in and is a military historian in your own right, is there something Ukrainians can do tactically that maybe the Russians who have shown the inability to adjust to anything um, possibly catch them by surprise? Yeah, they can. I mean, at the tactical level and. And they're likely going to do that at the Institute of the Study of War. We're tracking these movement of these Russian uh, formations moving down into the Donbass region. And they've made contact with the Ukrainians. And, and Brian, you know, it's amazing. They are continuing the same tactics that they did north of Kiev. In other words, they're roadbound. They're not maneuvering when they make contact. They don't do well about that. They haven't take advantage of the armor that they have and put it in formations and support it with artillery. So we may see some of the same ineptitude in this battle. And the Ukrainians are very flexible. I mean, they, they attack from the flank, they attack from the rear, uh, they attack at night. Uh, so yes, they're going to take advantage of their own ingenuity and imagination to deal with a force that significantly outguns them and outnumbers them. Yeah, so we, we cannot underestimate the Ukrainians in this fight, Brian. And, you know, the thing is, General, you, you, you felt the frustration of the Iraqis were slow to understand and be trained up and be ready to fight. And, and the Afghanistan, Afghanistan had a very small number of forces were actually competent. But we got our dream here. We got a very competent fighting force with tremendous will and determination. And they really seemed skilled. So in a way, this is what we had hoped for in the war on terror. We got it now. Now we just got to do what I think is the easier part. Give them what they need to succeed. Yeah, I totally totally agree with that. I do think that the administration was on a different page initially, and and I spoke about it, uh, you know, numbers of time on Fox. I think their stated goal was to assist the Ukrainians. Their unstated goal was they didn't want to provoke Putin, and they didn't want uh, him to take a provocative action as a result of uh, U.S. or NATO escalating. And that held back some of the support that the Ukrainians should have received. But I think that they're much more on the same page now with the Ukrainians than what they were in the past. And I know for a fact 
that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Millie, and Secretary of Defense, Austin, are spending hours every day on this very subject, making certain these guys are getting some of the things that they absolutely need. And that certainly has been reflected uh, in the recent list um, that they formulated and are going to sustain them. We've got to get other countries involved and put pressure on them as well, because there's a lot of equipment in NATO, Brian. <laughs> and and once you make up your mind that there's not enough Russian equipment around, and we're going to have to give them NATO equipment, well, obviously, all the NATO countries, uh, except for the former Soviet republics, have NATO equipment. And we can get that moving to them, right. even though we may have to do some training programs. And it's, it, listen, the Ukrainians are very imaginative people, and they're quick study. So uh, a day or two of training is something uh, in their minds uh, is not all that of a challenge. And, and right. they would get on with it. General Jack Keane, all over this. Appreciate it, General. It was great. Yeah, talk, great talking to you and your audience, Brian. Same here. Meanwhile, one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. You are now got the cutting edge information on the war as well as politics. Next, your calls one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Learning something new every day on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. The whole thing's unfair. It just shows that there's a massive divide at Twitter. There's the board, and then there's the shareholders. What Elon Musk has offered is a very good deal for the shareholders, and if it was a, if a sensible shareholder, should decide, sure, we'll, we'll sell to Elon Musk for this very good offer. But then there's the board. There's Twitter itself. And that doesn't seem to be interested in the good offer. And then the question becomes, OK, so what is it they're trying to protect? What is it they're trying to hide? I think there's a lot going on behind this. It's not just that they want to hold on to the toy that they believe is theirs and theirs alone and must always be only the toy of the radical left where you can only silence conservatives. It's that if Elon Musk acquired the company, we might actually find out what it is that Twitter's been doing in recent years. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Is there something they've been doing besides what we see? What they've been seeing behind and that shadow banning that started, we kind of picked it up in 2018. I didn't see anything about this in 2016. Then the massive suspensions after 2020. And now it's just understood that if the one thing goes January 6th, or talks about election fraud or the vaccine might not work. Next thing you know, you suspended. You got no one to answer to or or complain to. Vivek Ramaswamy was on with Dan Bongino over the weekend. Cut 22. And I also think this is really dangerous for the government. The government doesn't like this very much. Mark my words, they're going to come after him in one way or another via the SEC or otherwise because the government can capture Twitter as it exists today. They threaten Twitter to take down hate speech and misinformation as the government defines it. If Elon Musk runs Twitter, they may not be able to do that anymore. And so the government's actually going to come after him too is my prediction here. Mark my words, I think that's coming. That's what the managerial class does. That's how they operate. Wow, that's unbelievable. Oh. Uh, I mean, we're going to see what happens because uh, Elon Musk is just not going to go away. And if something, if he gets attacked publicly or attacked by the SEC publicly, there's going to be backlash on that, too. People are going to have classic wonder about the doubt of this, the overlord. And, and, if, and if you can bring Elon Musk to heal, what chance do we all have?
Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, coming to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, heard around the world, especially in Ukraine. Brett Baer will be joining me at the bottom of the hour. He's going to talk to Sean Penn, uh, maybe about his past movies and what he's been doing with his new movie, and that's doing a documentary on what's going on in Ukraine. Last thing I saw that Sean Penn says he might just start fighting with the Ukrainians. I don't know if that's a good idea, because they already captured two British soldiers they have them parading on television uh, in Russia TV. Russia is just indiscriminately bombing. They said they bombed 300 targets throughout Ukraine today, just long-range bombing. You know, they, did, they don't like fighting the Russian, the Ukrainian military, because they lose. But they love killing civilians, because they're good at it. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I'm going to be honest. Elon Musk is a danger to Twitter and to freedom of speech. He has been known to say some of the most transphobic and homophobic things to his millions of followers. So creating an arena for hate, to me, that's what that sounds like. Musk mania and his quest for Twitter. Why this must happen and why so many worry it will. More should worry if it doesn't. Number two. Gallup recently asked the public, what are your top concerns? Of course, economy and the cost of living was number one. Second, strikingly to me, was government and poor leadership. Other presidents have been able to recover from these sorts of uh, setbacks. But I think the public has judged Biden and judged him negatively. Dems have a feeling of doom and it's well-deserved. The economy, foreign policy, a befuddled president has all has almost lost all the confidence of his people. Meanwhile, on the other side, Donald Trump puts his personal power on the line by backing some Republicans who are underdogs in their Republican primaries. Number one. Despite the Russians uh, gathering and consolidating their forces here, I think the Ukrainians are going to give them a hell of a tough fight here. And there's no certainty that the Russians are going to be able to accomplish uh, what they want here in the South. Wow, epic battle looms in Donbass as Russians amass forces to take the east and perhaps the south while still striking all over the north. What's the West doing to arm the Ukrainians for a win as Russia's cruelty and barbarity hits new lows and Ukrainian strength gains global respect? So let's bring Michael Goodwin in now for the New York Post, Fox News contributor. Michael, first off, um, are you surprised at the level of barbarity and um, and, and indiscriminate killing the Russians are doing? Well, Brian, good morning. I would say shocked, but not surprised. Um, it is shocking to the conscience when you think of the just the absolute cruelty to be bombing hospitals and just indiscriminately Schools. just firing just firing into cities and not even necessarily knowing where it's going to land, just knowing you're hitting civilian targets. I mean, this is against all the rules of modern warfare. I mean, it, when we say barbaric, that is the way wars were fought for thousands of years. But modern warfare uh, goes to great lengths to prevent civilian deaths, to make it a military battle only. But this is Russia. I mean, this is the Soviet style. It was always thus for them. They never 
they i mean look at what they did even in world war 2 i mean they were wherever they went they not only were victorious in eastern and central europe but they but they held that territory i mean they conquered it and kept it that was what the soviet union was and this is this is a throwback to another time and when you see the the civilian suffering and you think about you know thousands perhaps tens of thousands of ukrainian civilians killed and millions millions of people uprooted 4 million people have fled the country i mean think of the the human suffering involved in that the trauma on children that will last their entire lifetime and and some of that we know that trauma gets passed on to their children as well because it shapes right. who they are so Yes, and this is all all because Vladimir Putin wants Ukraine. I mean, it's just nothing more uh, uh, He's not going to get Ukraine. He wants the Donbass region with the iron and the oil, and he's going to try to take that. Uh, but it's pretty amazing. But the only thing I factor into what you said is that they lose almost every time they engage the Ukrainian military. And instead of uh, understanding it and trying to beat the military and saying, well, there's some— there's some um, collateral damage. They start aiming for civilians, adults on bicycles, blowing up children in schools or theaters. And I'm saying to myself, wait a second. Do they have no shame? Are they, they have any sense of courage and honor at all in the fight? I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing glorious about winning a battle when you're fighting against 80-year-old women. No, and, and I've seen some clips of, you know, people saying, you know, uh, t- trying to address the mothers in Russia of the soldiers and saying, do you know what your sons are doing? I mean, do you see how cruel your sons are? And hopefully some of this will get through to ordinary citizens in Russia, who, of course, are tightly controlled about what they can hear. Yeah. and. And Putin is telling them this is a fight for survival against Nazis, which which refers back to World War II when it was communism versus Nazism throughout much of Europe. Um, you know, Hitler hated communists. The Soviets hated the Nazis. Well, Putin has tried to recreate that same mentality by accusing Ukraine of being ruled by Nazis and how this is a special mission to denazify Ukraine. I mean, it's all made up. You know, there's no truth to it. And so Russians themselves have been bombarded with this propaganda. And you would hope by now more and more Russians would be seen through this as the body bags come home and as soldiers are not heard from. Uh, you would think that the Russians would begin to get uh, – some more accurate sense, but everything I've read coming out of Russia is that the intensity of the propaganda within the country, the restrictions as to what else can be heard, the arrest of protesters, all of that has served to create this yeah. cult of feeling that this is really true. We are fighting the Nazis in Ukraine, and they were going to de- attack Russia. You know, NATO was going to attack Russia. I mean, they they 
been sold that bill of goods and sufficient numbers of people buy it that there's no internal threat to Putin as far right. as I can see. So let's just uh, – I want to get two of the topics, so let's try to move through it. In the uh, political realm, Donald Trump is going on the limb uh, endorsing J.D. Vance, one-time big critic of, uh, of Trump. So he was an anti-Trumper and now going for Dr. Oz over Dave McCormick. Here's what Chris Christie said as well as going for – uh, Senator Perdue to be the next governor of Georgia over a sitting Republican governor in in Kemp. Cut 15. It will always be a factor because the former president has influence inside the party. Um, but I don't believe his uh, endorsements will be determinative. Um, and I think you see that in the polling. You see in North Carolina where he's endorsed uh, Ted Budd. Um, Pat McCrory is still ahead in the polling there. You see him going all out. In fact, in an unprecedented way, spending some of his own money in Georgia. On the Brian Kemp David It seemed to surprise you. It it, it did surprise me a lot. But still only $500,000, so it's not going to do anything in a race where they're spending tens of millions. But he's losing there. Dave McCormick is winning in Pennsylvania right now, despite the Dr. Oz endorsement. So I don't know what it's going to happen, but McConnell is right at core that if Republicans don't nominate folks who can appeal to the general electorate, then all this momentum will be stunted in those states. If they pick the right people, then none of the none of the momentum will be stunted. Especially in the in the in the Senate. What do you think about uh, what, do, what do you think about Chris Christie's assessment? Well, no, I, I think he's right. The only thing I would add, Brian, is when I interviewed President Trump back in uh, on President's Day, I asked him if it was a litmus test for him that the people he endorsed or the people who voted for him even, who supported him still, uh, if, if they had to believe that the 2020 election was stolen. And that, to me, is, is the great tripwire here. Because if Trump is only going to endorse people who believe the election was stolen, or, or who will say that in exchange for an endorsement, if he, only, if he keeps making that appeal... I believe it's a very narrow appeal. I don't believe that he will become the next president if that is part of his campaign. He can he can believe it, I, and I think he does believe it. I don't think he's you know floating a, a trial balloon. He believes this, but I think the country wants to move ahead, and if if you're going to make it about 2020. I think these candidates whom you're endorsing now, many of them are going to, as Chris Christie says, many of them are going to fail in a general public because, yes, it's true, something like 40 percent of the public thinks there were phony things that happened in 2020. But 40 percent is not a majority. And you can you can make a big showing out of that. But I don't believe you can win election in most places if that's your your main position. I I do think I think that Purdue's going to lose. But I think that Dr. Oz was in a dead heat before the endorsement. This could put him up. Uh, And I think it's going to be very interesting. J.D. Vance was trailing by about seven in most polls. And I think this could be the difference in Ohio, where I think the president is very popular. We'll see. But if, if, you're, if you're running on 2020 was, uh, was um, rigged, I think you're done. Uh, I, we have no interest in 2020. We have so many other problems to deal with. Uh, Michael, last question. I want you to hear what Ron Dermer said about this policy of going back into this terrible deal with Iran. Uh, Ron Dermer is a former U.S. ambassador, uh, former Israeli ambassador to the United States. 
Cut 11. The other countries in the region are just not going to sit on their hands. You're going to have the Saudis go maybe to the Pakistanis to get nuclear weapons. You'll see Turkey. You'll see Egypt try to develop nuclear weapons programs of their own. Now you're taking the most unstable region in the entire world where you've got a lot of fanatics running around the Middle East, and you're going to turn it into a nuclear tinderbox. And you don't have to do this deal. And he said they, have done, they did four deals in two years with Donald Trump. Two years. They did two in 40 years prior to him coming over. And this administration just doesn't even acknowledge the Abraham Accords. No, and, and the significance of the Abraham Accords, Brian, are you had, you had Israel and America's al- Arab allies working together. And that, that, force, that force of the United countries opposed to Iran, Iran is what Iran as an enemy is what the Arabs and the Israelis have in common. And Trump seized on that, that natural alliance and forged friendships and trade agreements and even some mutual security exchanges. Biden would shatter that whole Mideast idea by making the deal with Iran, by cozying up to Iran. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty striking when you think about it, when it goes back to Obama making that first deal with Iran and what the thinking was. It was to bring Iran in from the cold. But, but when, you, when you look at it, it, it ne- Iran never changed its stripes. It still wants to foment Islamic revolution throughout the region. And so until it changes its stripes, you cannot treat it like a normal country. And yet that's what Obama did, and it failed, and it's what Biden is doing again. I mean, Biden is like on automatic pilot with this thing. There's never been a public discussion, really. It's just a, this is a good thing. It's not a good thing. Nobody in the region thinks it's a good thing. How can it be a good thing? There's Democrats uniting against this. Demanding to be voted, be have a vote on this. They don't want to let anybody vote or see it while the Russians negotiate it and make to will profit off it because they're going to take all the uh, all the uh, enriched uranium into their country. So while we sit in the other room and let the Russians negotiate, it is by far the craziest thing I've seen in my lifetime uh, as foreign affairs, as as crazy as the evacuation of Afghanistan was only this through talks. Well, and then, think of this too, Brian. So one day Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. The next day we trust him to negotiate the Iran nuclear accord. <laughs> it's nuts. I, it's I mean, where, where is the, this? This is like your head wants to explode when you try to gather both of these thoughts together. They don't make any sense. I know. Uh, I think you have an idea for a Thursday column or a Wednesday column, right? <laughs> I gave you a lot. And so we'll see. Uh, Michael Goodwin, thanks so much. Uh, always a pleasure, Brian. Thank uh, you. Got him fired up. Um, Brett Bear at the bottom of the hour. You're next. 1-866-408-7669. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Is he a stupid son of a Or does he play a stupid son of a on TV? Okay. Um, well, um, he works for a, a network. 
Okay. That um, provides people with questions that nothing personal to any individual, including Peter Ducey, but might make anyone sound like a stupid son of a <laughs> So Jen Psaki in front of a big audience on Pod Save America, a bunch of Obamaites trying to get her to say stuff, but she, she had plenty of time to think about it. She didn't have a knee-jerk reaction. She thought about it and said that a network provides him with questions that make him sound like a stupid son of a uh, son of a bitch. So that was unbelievable. Number one, what does it have to do with anything? The questions are good. You might not like the questions. And see, he comes up with his own questions. You can't possibly have this type of pace of doing this five days a week for two years and then the campaign in between that. You might not want to answer the questions because they aren't like, why isn't President Biden doing more for the environment? She wants those questions as opposed to, you have left 2.2 million people into this country while vowing not to build a wall, and yet you're, the only investigation you're doing is on the horse soldiers who you claim were whipping Haitians. So that is, makes him a stupid SOB. I mean, the questions that he asks are, are not extraneous questions. And, and what they're referring to is when President Biden called Peter Ducey a, a stupid SOB because he wasn't aware, even though he was standing in front of a microphone, that he was standing in front of a microphone and everyone heard him. So here's what she said about the fact that Joe Biden called up to apologize to Peter Ducey after. Sean Hannity asked him about, the, you know, what the president had said and what he said back. And he could have been like, he's a son of a or I'm standing up for whatever. He could have said anything. And instead he said, you know, he called me. We had a really nice conversation. I'm just asking my questions. He's doing his job. So I will say that was a moment of grace. You don't have to like everything Peter Ducey says or does, but that is certainly a moment of grace by Peter Ducey. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that didn't take, I don't know, that, uh, that's noteworthy. It definitely should come up in a, a meeting. The other thing that Jen Psaki's got a huge problem with, and is the fact that she's going to NBC. So she's still doing her job while all but signed to NBC. If stuff like that happens, it usually happens months later out of the box. You hear about rumors that would begin. But even NBC seems to have a problem with that. Let's see what Brett Bear thinks. He's just around the corner. He's got Sean Penn tonight. And Sean Penn sat down with Sean Hennedy a couple weeks ago. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. talk show that's getting you talking you're with brian kilmeade you get the sense that vladimir putin uh uh, is viewing reality and what's happening in ukraine or is he getting uh a dressed up picture of the war no i think he is now in his own war logic you know um he thinks the war is necessary for uh, security guarantees for the russian federation he doesn't trust the international community. He blames the Ukrainians um, to, for uh, genocide, uh, genocide in uh, the Donbas region. So, um, well, um, he is now in his world, but I think he knows what is going on now in Ukraine. Well, I just wanted a follow-up question on that. What does he think is going on in the Ukraine? He knows now. Knows what? Uh, because Karl Niehammer is the Austro- Austrian chancellor. They are neutral. 
but they went to he went to Busha before he went to visit in Moscow. And since the war started, this is his first visit with a head of state. And he went in there. He says he laid it on the line. He was very blunt, but Putin thinks he's winning the war. And but now he knows the reality of what's going on. So what is it? He arrested. I heard a hundred intelligence officers were arrested. Arrested. So were they plotting a coup, or they just sucked at their job and they predicted that. Ukraine would fall in 72 hours, kind of like our intelligence agencies. Uh, with me right now is, oh, he's not ready yet? Okay. Um, I thought he was up there. But uh, Brett Bell will be joining us shortly. So here's Vladimir Zelensky. On He is not into talks right now, and I don't blame him. But he thinks the whole world should be worried about what Vladimir Putin is capable of after what he's seen so far. Cut three. The director of the CIA warned that he's worried Putin might use a tactical nuclear weapon in this fight. Are you worried? Not only me. I think we, all, all, all of the world, all the countries have to be worried because you, you know that it can be not real information, but it, but it can be the truth. We should think, not, not, uh, not be afraid. I mean, that not be afraid, be ready. But uh, but that is not the question for to Ukraine and not only for the Ukraine for all the uh, for all the world. I think so. Look, nobody knows for sure, but he is losing tens of thousands. He lost. They that we both, the Ukrainians say twenty thousand. Some say more soldiers. Can you imagine that twenty thousand? Let alone how many are wounded right now hanging out in Belarus. How many quit? How many shot themselves in order not to fight? But he's got a lot of resources. But. He can't have that much if he's got to go beg the Syrian war fighters to come and they're coming. The Wagner group to expand and they're there. That shows how serious this is. And I just think that we got to make, go out of our way to make sure that, that, that Zelensky in this last battle, in this last battle wins. So Lieutenant General Ben Hodges had a lot of things to say. I thought he was very interesting yesterday on Face the Nation. One of the things he also said is that Vladimir Putin's got no plan. This is the second phase of the war, and there's no indication they're planning for a third phase. And here's why. If you're planning for a third phase of the war, you have already called up all your reserves. And you got them training and getting ready and reacclimated to possibly coming up should you not be able to secure the Donbass region and then get into talks after. And he hasn't even done that yet. So it makes it think they're all in on this. So that's interesting. Here's Chris Coons, though. I want you to hear this. The, Demo- the, the man who became the next senator of Delaware when Joe Biden became vice president. Cut 10. Are you arguing that President Biden Margaret. was wrong when he said he would not send troops to Ukraine? Are you asking him to set a red line? This is a critical moment. If Vladimir Putin, who has shown us how brutal he can be, is allowed to just continue uh, to massacre civilians, to commit war crimes um, throughout Ukraine, uh, without NATO, without the West uh, coming more forcefully to his aid, um, I, gra- I, I deeply worry that what's going to happen next is that we will see Ukraine turn into Syria. Mm-hmm. The American people cannot turn away from this tragedy in Ukraine. I think the history of the 21st century turns on how fiercely mm-hmm. we defend freedom in Ukraine and that Putin will only stop when we stop him. I agree, because they're going to go right for the Moldova right after and start rattling the cage of every non-NATO nation. The Donbass analysis goes like this. Donbass is about the, uh, about the size of New Hampshire, with the front line stretching hundreds of miles. Russia borders it, uh, kind of an arc from the north to the east, and most residents speak Russian, although they're not loyal to Russia. 
name for the rich uh, Donibus Basin of Coal seems just the surface. The region is dotted with Soviet-era mining and factory towns across the sprawl of sunflower fields and grassy plains. They also have oil. They also have iron. Now, the question is, who's got the advantage? Well, in the open field, they say Russia's got the advantage. But as a defending force, which Ukraine is, they have the advantage in striking from entrenched positions at Russian troops as they advance over ground in the artillery range. So you heard what General Keene said last hour. He said the Russians are still using only roads. They're not going off-road. And when they are engaged, they're not, they're not aligning or setting up formations where artillery is guarding against the tanks. They still are on their own, and they seem clueless when engaged. They got about 40,000 troops. It's hard to tell how many Ukraine has. They don't know how many survived, and they want to keep that somewhat secret. The big difference from the northern phase of the war and the others in, in kind of an urban environment, military analysts are forecasting an all-out bloody battle that is very much like World War II. Prediction, it'll be long. It'll be slow-moving. The front lines don't move for weeks. But we'll see who's got the best weapons. The West has the best weapons, but they only seem to be trained on Soviet-era weapons. That's what's got to change. Believe me, if you be, want to become a, a NATO nation, you've got to be able to use Western stuff. And we've got to sell it to them. Uh, Bulgaria can write checks. Latvia, Lithuania, they can write checks. Of course they could do it in, in Finland and Sweden. If we have to keep getting them Soviet-era things, fascinating to see that General Keene says they're reaching to Vietnam because they have all their Soviet stuff, and that Vietnam is more of an ally to us uh, than to Russia. They don't know if they want to get involved directly. So right now the Mariupol is holding on. My feeling is the reason why uh, Cherniskov was able to survive even though it was being pummeled, is because they were able to bring in reinforcements, force the distraction of the troops to go and block the re-entrance of Ukraine, and they were able to force the Russians out. They said, this is not worth it to hold this area. We already wrecked the place we're going to go. Meanwhile, senators right now, both, uh, mostly Democrat, I guess they're all Democrat, um, it is going to be Senator Gillibrand, Senator Cory Booker, Senator Mark Kelly, uh, Congressman Mondera Jones, are all going to Poland, the UAE, India, Nepal, and Germany over the next nine days. The group is issuing, uh, they want to get some statements out there and let them know they're going to need some help. The biggest disappointment is India. They have all the Russian stuff, but they do not want to alienate Russia, even though they're the largest democracy in the world. And they're enemies with China. China's loyal to Russia. It's easy. Russia is not going to start invading India, but they're making their choice. And it doesn't look like they're getting a lot of pressure from us. All right, when we come back, we'll find out if there's indeed more to know and see if we can catch up to Brett. And by the way, tonight, I just found out I am hosting for Jesse at the 7 primetime. And always remember, Saturday, set your DVR for One Nation, Saturday, 8 and 11. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. In Nevada is a very acute problem, and it's an indicative problem that, the, as John Anselone said, 
Democrats are facing a very dire situation in November. And just to, to put some numbers on that, more than 7 in 10, 72 percent of Nevadans rated economic conditions fair or poor. This is a state that has gone for the Democratic candidate for times in a row for Democratic presidential mm-hmm. candidate. It's a state that Biden won. Um, so now his approval rating there is below the overall poll. It's at 35 percent. Right. And most scary and perhaps most ominous is the peeling off of Hispanic voters yep. in Nevada. Um, slump of approval rating from 73 percent a year ago to 52 percent now. You just read that if you're a Democratic um, candidate or pollster, you read it and gulp. What uh, is going on here? Yeah. Also in Nevada, Laxalt, the Republican uh, nominee, uh, leads Cortez Masto by 43-40. And in the governor's race, the Republicans leads the sitting governor by two points. Lombardo there. Joining me now is uh, Brett Baer. Brett, it seems like uh, the Democrats are getting the world ready for a bloodbath. So when it happens, uh, they'll just say, look, I, we predicted it. Yeah. Hey, Brian, it's a game of expectations, right? It's um, if you're staring at a a red wave, which really looks like a red tsunami at this point, uh, you prepare everybody and you say, this is what's going to happen. And then if you pick off a few here or there, it's suddenly a win. The bottom line is that this president is underwater on every major issue. And you have Democrats breaking away from the president on inflation. You have Democrats breaking away with this president on immigration, specifically Title 42. When you have a Senate candidate in Arizona campaigning on against the sitting president of his party on one big issue, that's a big problem. I would say so. So I looked at uh, Axios today had these the outlay, Mitch McConnell's outlay of money to report um, Republican candidates. Whoever the nominee is against Warnock, $37 million. To, to hold Burr's seat in North Carolina, $27 million. Toomey, $24 million to hold that seat in Pennsylvania. To beat Mastro in uh, $15 million. Johnson to hold his seat, uh, $14 million. Here's the big question. In New Hampshire, even though Hassan, uh, Maggie Hassan, uh, is very vulnerable, no money yet. Is there not one good candidate in New Hampshire since Sununu won't do it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it was a blow for Republicans when Governor Sununu said no. Uh, but one would think that you could find some Republican uh, who could hold their own in a state that is going to be a focus in a couple of years anyway. Uh, um, and so I would imagine that there is some candidate who emerges, but there's not one yet. Not one yet. Uh, the other thing is uh, noteworthy is Donald Trump putting prestige on the line. With Dr. Oz, who's basically in a flat-footed tie with Dave McCormick in Pennsylvania, and by going with J.D. Vance. Here's what Chris Christie said about the power that Trump still wields. Uh, Cut 15. It will always be a factor because the former president has influence inside the party. Um, But I don't believe his uh, endorsements will be determinative. Um, And I think you see that in the polling. You see in North Carolina where he's endorsed uh, Ted Budd, um, Pat McCrory is still ahead in the polling there. You see him going all out, in fact, in an unprecedented way, spending some of his own money in Georgia on the Brian Kemp David. It seemed to surprise race. you. It, it, it did surprise me a lot, and, but still only $500,000, so it's not going to do anything in a race where they're spending tens of millions. But he's losing there. He's, Dave McCormick is winning in Pennsylvania right now, despite the Dr. Oz endorsement. So I don't know what it's going to happen, but McConnell is right. So what do, you, what do you think? I know Governor Christie wants to run for president 
Do you think that he's, he thinks that the prestige of Donald Trump is really in the line in these races? I do think that there is some analysis about that, that you have to look at his endorsements and say, does he have the juice just by the endorsement to bring it across the finish line? And some of those endorsements, I think, are in question. I think David Perdue is in trouble in Georgia. And I do think Dr. Oz is going to have his hands full with David McCormick in that primary in Pennsylvania. Um, So, yeah, I think there's a question about the former president and his coattails, um, you know, this coming year for the midterms. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's going to be very interesting. Now, you have a big interview tonight, Sean Penn. Did you do it already? Or No, 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 it's tomorrow. We're doing oh, it tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow. In It's a conversation, actually, between uh, Robert O'Brien, former national security advisor, and Sean Penn, talking about um, Ukraine, his recent trip, and uh, interview with uh, Zelensky and his documentary, as well as their strange tie together uh, in the – O'Brien and, and Penn have a previous history of dealing with each other when O'Brien was heading up uh, the hostage negotiation uh, things for the U.S. Anyway, it's a conversation. It's going to be at the Nixon Library uh, tomorrow, and we're going to air a piece of it on Special Report, and it'll uh, it'll be a Fox Nation hour. Yeah, it's kind of kind of interesting what's happening there because most of Hollywood is actually in support of Ukraine in a way, not, not like Sean Penn. I mean, the guy's actually was on the ground, but... I don't remember a time in which more people in America from different sections are in support. And as was brought up to me over the weekend with I was talking to Douglas Murray, he says the most division is really amongst Republicans. A lot of Republicans think that we should have nothing to do with Ukraine and that we real provocative in allowing NATO to get so big and threaten Vladimir Putin. I'm shocked by that. I agree. I mean, I think it's an interesting take, and it's, it is the split in the Republican Party um, that has, you know, what is in the national security interest. But I think there are many people, including yourself, who uh, articulate the national security interest of stopping Putin from expansion uh, pretty well. So uh, the party is is split on that issue. And uh, you're right. The unity is, is in different places that usually don't see it. How hard did you study to get ready for this segment with my show? You know what? I spent a lot of time uh, reading, and um, no, not that much at all. I didn't think so. But I'm going to throw you off because it's going to be impossible to prepare for this one topic. Rob Gronkowski on what he plans on doing next and who he wants to fight next. It would be pretty cool to have The Rock come back and face The Rock or have him as my tag team partner. Uh, it would be cool, you know, to get a people's elbow, but it would also be cool to have them on my squad. Maybe like the Generation X, we can bring them back. We can tag team versus them. That would be pretty cool. Uh, maybe Val Venus can come back. We can tag team. He was one of my favorites. I love the old school guys. I wouldn't want to go versus someone like the Big Show or the Undertaker. Uh, they're just too massive, dude. Too massive, man. They're 6'11". I don't like when I go versus guys bigger than me. I like to be the biggest guy. So what about Gronkowski going against The Rock or with The Rock? I've never seen this before. I'm going to either fight you or I'm going to be on your team. Do you think this is a good move? That could be a political ticket come 24. You never know. (laughs) It would would definitely uh, be the best debate ever. But you look for Gronkowski to come back, right? I do. I do. I mean, if Brady's back, I mean, I think so. I mean, 
I'm concerned about my Washington commanders, but, um, yeah, I think he's coming back. Wait a second. You have a quarterback now, don't you? We do. Carson Wentz. And uh, you never know. Stranger things have happened than a good season in Washington. Wow, I just can't believe you adapted to the name Commanders already. You act like <laughs> we we don't know what we're going to call him for sure. Commies. Right. I mean, what are we doing? What do we call the Indi- Does anyone, Pete? What do we call the Indians again? They're oh um, oh I'm forget- I forgot the, uh, the name already. This is terrible. Pete, look at Guardians. I, the Guardians. Guardians. You missed what Brett's nickname, though, the commies. I thought it was hyster- that I was laughing hysterically at that one, Brett. Oh, that would have been good. That would have been very interesting. Uh, that would be very, uh, very funny. Uh, listen, um, I'm going to enjoy your Nixon airing of the Robert O'Brien, Sean Penn sparring session. Yes, tomorrow. And, yes, it'll be a big week, too. Uh, uh, Brett, thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you, Brett. All right, and he's going to be tossing to me tonight because I'm hosting for Jesse um, on primetime. So that'll uh, make sure you catch us there and set your VCR right now, TVR, DVR, for not D, not VCR, your DVR for One Nation Saturdays at 8. Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Keep it here. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.